0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the Insightful Thinker's Podcast, number 16 I believe, uh, Classical Conditioning, a little bit of science today for you guys, I hope you guys had a great weekend as well, another Monday morning, and uh, uh, hoping to start the week off right with another episode you guys, and uh, I hope you guys find this topic uh, as interesting as I do you guys, this is a classic topic in psychology, what is Classical Conditioning? Classical conditioning is the form of learning in which subjects respond to a previously neutral stimulus that has been paired with a stimulus that automatically elicits a response. So um, don't worry guys, this is going to get, uh, I'll try to explain it the best I can and it's going to get a little simpler as we go. So basically what it is, is learning by association. So something that is initially never caused a reaction ends up causing a reaction just because it has been presented in tandem many times with an actual reaction provoking stimulus. So in the classical Classical Conditioning Experiment by Ivan Pavlov, Um, it, it presents a great example for what this is to help us understand what it is. So there's an unconditioned stimulus, which is a stimulus that elicits an automatic response. So, for instance, food. Um, so the, And food, the unconditioned stimulus, creates the unconditioned response of salivation. It didn't take any conditioning for the dog to salivate um, once food arrived. So, the unconditioned response, which is salivation, is the automatic response to the unconditioned stimulus, food. And don't worry if you guys don't understand all the terms. All you really need to know is that food creates an unconditioned response of salivation. Now there's something of a called a conditioned stimulus. The conditioned stimulus is an initial initially neutral stimulus that comes to elicit a response due to being paired over and over with the unconditioned stimulus. And this would be something like a metronome. So imagine every time you bring a dog food, you also play the sound of a metronome, which is like a, a ticking sound okay? Now, eventually, when you just play the ticking sound, the dog will salivate just to the tick. And this is the conditioned response called salivation. So remember the unconditioned response was salivation uh, to the food. It took no conditioning to salivate to the food. But the conditioned response is salivation to the metronome. Now, through learning by association, the dog salivates to the metronome. And that's the conditioned response, the newfound response to a previously neutral stimulus. The metronome used to not elicit any salivation, but now salivation happens when the dog hears the metronome. That's the conditioned response. So let's talk about Pavlov's landmark experiments, how he'd even discovered this form of learning, which is so common, and we'll talk about some of the implications of it for today. Um, but first, let's talk about Pavlov's landmark experiments. So these experiments emerged from a set of unforeseen observations that were unrelated actually to his main research interests. Pavlov's primary research was digestion in dogs. In fact, it was his discoveries concerning digestion, not classical conditioning, that earned him the Nobel Prize in 1904. But while studying salivary responses to meat powder, Pavlov found that dogs began salivating, as we mentioned, not only to the meat powder itself, but previously neutral stimuli that had become associated with the meat powder, such as research assistants who brought in the powder. Now all of a sudden, just seeing the research assistant was causing the dog to salivate, and Pavlov was realizing that the the salivation tube was, uh, there was more and more saliva in there, and this was only due to the researcher's footsteps. So, The dogs seemed to be anticipating the meat powder and responding to stimuli that signaled its arrival, namely the researchers walking in. So the initial experiment Pavlov conducted after this serendipitous discovery, because obviously uh, in science you don't just um, make some... uh, Unsubstantiated claims just by seeing something in the lab, you have to conduct the experiment. So Pavlov went on to do this. So he started with the metronome, the stimulus that didn't elicit any response that we talked about. He then paired this metronome repeatedly with the unconditioned stimulus of food, which elicits automatic salivation. As Pavlov repeatedly paired the neutral stimulus with the unconditioned stimulus, he observed classical conditioning. If he now presented the metronome alone, it elicited salivation all of a sudden. So the metronome had become the conditioned stimulus, which is, as we mentioned, the previously neutral thing that now comes to elicit a response just by way of it being associated with the unconditioned stimulus over and over, which is the food. The dog, which previously did nothing when it heard the metronome, now salivates when it hears the metronome. So I hope this is getting across the idea of what classical conditioning is, you guys. and It is a a uh, fairly simple topic. Um, I remember uh, well learning it the first time, and um, although simple, it is such a—it's uh, a very a- elegant kind of uh, idea of how you can just learn through association, and and it's just incredible uh, how it was just kind of a chance discovery by Pavlov. Um, let's go through a couple examples to try to hammer the point home of what classical conditioning is. So imagine uh, you find your first ride on a roller coaster terrifying, and this causes your heart to race. But now, all of a sudden, every time you see a picture of a roller coaster, your heart races. So the unconditioned stimulus, and (laughs) I almost wish I could, um, we could like ask questions and answer questions, almost because questions and answers always seem to facilitate learning a little better than just saying it in an expository way. But anyways, I'll just say, so the the unconditioned stimulus in this case is the roller coaster ride. The con- unconditioned response is the racing heartbeat. So it didn't take any conditioning to elicit a racing heartbeat. That's why this is the unconditioned stimulus and the unconditioned response. Now, what does take conditioning? Well, the conditioned stimulus is the picture of a roller coaster and the conditioned response is the racing heartbeat now just to the picture of the roller coaster. So you go from having a racing heartbeat to actually riding it to now when you see a picture, that association that you made causes your heart to race automatically. And that's the conditioned response. Let's go through another example of, imagine you get sick after eating a bad steak that gave you food poisoning at a restaurant. Soon after, even just the smell of steak causes you to be nauseous. So and let's go through it here. So the unconditioned stimulus in this case is the bad steak. It took no conditioning to elicit the unconditioned response of nausea from eating the, the bad steak. But the conditioned stimulus is just the smell of steak. It took some conditioning for the smell to elicit the conditioned response of nausea from smelling the steak, because the smell initially did not, um, create any type of a, uh, creating type of response but now just due to association the smell totally causes um causes nausea on its own without you actually needing to eat the steak that causes you uh, food poisoning so let's talk about the major principles in classical conditioning uh, to further uh, continue the in-depth analysis into uh into classical conditioning. We're not, as you guys know by now, we're not just doing surface level stuff. We're going really in depth into whatever topic we're talking about every Monday morning. So, the first major principle of classical conditioning is acquisition. Acquisition is the learning phase during which the conditioned response becomes established. So, as the conditioned stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus, so conditioned stimulus like the metronome and the unconditioned stimulus of the food, or the meat powder, are paired repeatedly, the conditioned response of salivation to the metronome starts to increase in strength more and more. Let's do two examples to to understand what acquisition is in classical conditioning. So for instance, as you repeatedly pair the metronome, the conditioned stimulus, with the food, the unconditioned stimulus, the salivary response to the metronome becomes stronger and stronger. The dog is basically beginning to associate the metronome with food more and more um second example as you repeatedly pair the smell of steak the conditioned stimulus because remember it took conditioning for this stimulus to elicit your sickness with eating the bad steak the unconditioned stimulus that takes no conditioning uh, to elicit sickness the nauseous response simply to the smell of steak becomes stronger and stronger and stronger so you begin to associate the smell of steak um with a with, uh, nauseous feeling more and more. That's the acquisition phase. And eventually the ac- acquisition phase reaches and um, like a peak and it plateaus a little bit, but during the acquisition phase, you're you're basically learning the association, I guess I'll go this way for the people watching on YouTube, more and more, just like a, uh, a graph that reaches its plateau. There's also the extinction phase. So the extinction is the gradual reduction and eventual elimination of the conditioned response. So this is like undoing all the effects of the classical conditioning. So for it, let's do the two examples again. So imagine you repeatedly present the metronome without the food now. The salivary response to the metronome becomes weaker and weaker. So the dog begins to associate the metronome with food less and less. So it starts to extinguish this. Initially, remember, if if you paired the metronome with the food a lot during the acquisition phase, now when the dog hears the metronome, he knows food is coming. But if you keep just giving him a metronome and no food that behavior is going to start to extinguish and he's not going to salivate as much because he's starting to learn maybe the metronome doesn't mean I'm going to get food anymore. Example number two with the steak. So as you repeatedly pair the smell of steak without eating bad steak, so say you eat a lot of good steaks and you get the smell of it and the steak starts to, you you stop pairing it with, with a bad steak. So you're actually eating a good steak. Well, the nauseous response to the smell of steak becomes weaker and weaker because you uh, begin to associate the smell of steak with bad steak less and less. So at a certain point you realize, hmm, the smell of steak, it's not that you're consciously doing this. Classical conditioning is like automatic learning that elicits an automatic response. But essentially what's happening is that... Um, You start to realize that just the smell of steak, it's not going to cause me nausea because I I mean, I'm associating uh, now good steaks with the smell of steak. So over time, these conditioning uh, things can become extinguished if you present the conditioned stimulus enough with um, without the initial stimulus that's needed for the genuine reaction. There's also a principle called spontaneous recovery. Spontaneous recovery is the sudden re-emergence of a conditioned response following extinction when an animal is returned to the environment in which the conditioned response was acquired. Um, so let's do an example to illustrate the spontaneous recovery after this extinction happened. Imagine if the extinction goes away for the dog and now when he hears the metronome uh, wherever, he he doesn't get excited, he doesn't salivate. But that Salvation can re-emerge to the metronome uh, due to spontaneous recovery so initially imagine uh, you got a scare when you saw a snake in the forest but now even when you go back to that same area of the forest you feel fear that's spontaneous recovery so you may have previously overcome your fear of snakes and are not afraid in most forests but being back in that exact same environment renews the fear so say the dog no longer associates metronomes with food so he doesn't salivate anymore in uh, in your house because you're the one who's doing the or say in someone else's house, Um, but then when he comes back to the environment where he was learning to associate the metronome with food, all of a sudden the response comes back and he salivates like crazy just from being in that same environment, kind of like the snake in the forest. You may have overcome your fear of snakes, but just being in that same environment causes you to feel fear all of a sudden. and let's talk about now stimulus generalization. Another important concept in classical conditioning. Stimulus generalization, generalization. Excuse me, is a process by which similar conditioned stimuli elicit a conditioned response. Um, so we know that Pavlov's dog salivates to the food, then to the metronome after many presentations. Uh, of the metronome and the food together, right? The metronome is the conditioned stimulus to elicit the conditioned response of uh, salivation to now the metronome. But in stimulus generalization, the dog may even salivate to things that sound similar to the metronome or have similar frequencies. So the conditioned stimulus, the metronome generalizes, uh, stimulus generalization, and creates a reaction even to similar sounds. So there are interesting graphs where if you present met, uh, sounds with frequencies, the, clo- the more similar they are to sounding like the metronome, the more the stimulus will be generalized and the dog will salivate. If the frequency is too far away from the metronome, actually less there will be less salivation because it's not as similar to the initial metronome that was a signal that food was coming. And it's so cool the way things, these things operate because... Although they're learned associations, it's these are automatic responses. That's what classical conditioning is. It's it's automatic responses and salivation. So the dog doesn't say, oh, that's a different frequency. I'm going to salivate less. The, the salivation is just dependent on um, the frequency naturally and how close that initial frequency, the frequency is to the initial metronome's frequency. Um, Another important principle in classical conditioning is second-order conditioning. So, second-order conditioning is when the conditioned response is transferred from one conditioned stimulus to another. So, for instance, the dog goes from salivating from the food to salivating to the metronome. We know that. But now he salivates to a bell. So, the con- it's not quite like generalization. Generalization is like he's uh, salivating to sim uh, like similar frequencies of the metronome, but this one what's happening is when you introduce a bell along with the metronome, Now you can even take the metronome away and now he'll just salivate to the bell. He or she will salivate to the bell. So the conditioned stimulus, which was once the metronome, um, now becomes the bell just because the bell was paired with the metronome. It's like second order conditioning. Essentially the dog is now salivating to something one more step removed from the food. Initially he was just salivating to the food naturally, then to the metronome. But then if you pair the bell and the metronome, now he salivates to the bell. That's the second order conditioning. that's definitely kind of cool kind of cool is one thing but there also need to be some implications for them to be uh, important research findings without implications finding research is essentially useless and uh that's what um that's really what journals look for is discussion of implications when you make research findings and even if Pavlov may not have understood all of the implications of his discovery initially, research like this, uh, that is so groundbreaking, like this, eventually can stimulate um, a lot of uh, interested researchers into finding applications, and they have found quite a few. And it's been found in therapy, for instance. So, individuals with anxiety disorders exhibit abnormalities in conditioned fear. So, for instance, even without uh, hardly doing any public speaking to cause anxiety just the idea of public speaking becomes enough to generate substantial anxiety. So um, if you genuinely had done a lot of public speaking and had a lot of issues with it, then maybe you'll get a new condition stimulus of the idea of public speaking to cause you a condition response of, of feeling fear and anxiety just from the idea and not even doing it. But individuals with anxiety disorders often, they might not have even have ever done any public speaking, but just the idea of it, or not necessarily anxiety disorders, I've, I'm just using public speaking as an example in this case, but just the idea of public speaking, even though it hasn't been conditioned to uh, cause negative thoughts, because you've had a lot of negative experiences with public speaking, you just... Um, exhibit an abnormality in this, in this conditioned fear in an unreasonable way. You have an unreasonable anxiety and fear for it, even though you've hardly ever done it. So essentially, even without constant pairing of public speaking with negative feelings, an individual may still exhibit a negative conditioning towards public speaking, creating a negative response to just the thought of doing it now. Um, behavioral therapy can break down these detrimental associations using an extinction paradigm. So, constantly, uh, what, what they're basically doing in an extinction paradigm is to treat these individuals with abnormalities and conditioned fear. So, what they basically do is they constantly pair uh, public speaking with positive feelings. Remember how pavlov paired the metronome with the food it's kind of like uh so the food caused a natural response of salivation and the public speaking for these individuals may cause a natural response of fear but if you pair uh this public speaking with more of a positive thing um then eventually the thought of public speaking will no longer cause unsubstantiated anxiety. So just by pairing uh, initially negative things with positive things at the same time can cause you to feel those positive feelings. So what they basically do is they start with short proactive speeches, for instance, just between the therapist uh, and him or herself. And progressively these speeches get longer and longer. And these speeches happen all while giving the patient positive reinforcement and making an effort to create positive ideas about public speaking and enjoying laughs and things like this eventually these positive ideas about public speaking override the anxiety one has and this is really the approach in behavioral therapy and this is just behavioral therapy there are many different uh, forms of therapy and ways to go about treating anxiety and phobias like this but uh, in behavioral therapy this is kind of how they would do it there's also kind of a spin-off of this in virtual reality therapy. So a patient wears a VR headset that progressively puts the patient in situations that cause greater and greater fear to break down phobias. You don't want to necessarily flood them uh, although flooding this is really into the weeds of psychology but you don't necessarily always want to flood the participant or not the participant, the um, the client with his or her phobia immediately right off the bat. That could cause a little bit of psychological damage. So sometimes the best thing to do is introduce the phobia in small increments. If you're afraid of spiders, maybe I don't exactly know how they do. Maybe you show uh, a painting of a spider or like a, uh, yeah, and then you show like a, photograph of a spider, then you show like a really small real spider, and then eventually you just like keep presenting increasingly frightening things to break down their phobia. But you don't do this alone. You don't present the spider alone because then they might just feel fear. They're going to exhibit their phobia. What you do in behavioral therapy is between each level, you give relaxation training so that the client is relaxed before entering the next level of increasing difficulty. And this causes the positive feelings that they get from this relaxation training to be paired with once fearful situations, eventually reducing their fear. This learning by association. Remember, you guys, if you compare what you're afraid of with positive feelings, eventually, there's a chance that those positive feelings will override that initial fear. There's also something called aversive counter conditioning for alcoholism. So uh, what is this? So an aversive or unpleasurable stimulus is paired with the alcohol that someone is addicted to. So for instance, the patient is presented alcohol repeatedly with a disgusting smell coming from uh that source or from another source close by eventually by by classical conditioning and learning by association the alcoholic naturally feels disgusted at the sight or idea of alcohol so you present what what the alcoholic is addicted to the alcohol with a negative stimulus, a really rotten smell that makes them get a little bit sick. And eventually, even if you don't present that rotten smell, just by looking uh, or thinking about alcohol, that pay, that client might not want it anymore. these These are the implications of classical conditioning and therapy. There's also you can also actually treat bedwetting called nocturnal enuresis with classical conditioning. And there's something called the bell and pad method, which was developed by Morer and Morer in 19, all the way back in 1938. What is this? So there's a pad that's placed on a child that senses a single droplet of urine and activates a bell. So the child wakes up and goes to the bathroom. So as soon as the child starts wetting the bed, a bell goes off and then the child goes to the bathroom, of course. So this is good, and the child would could keep this uh, bell on to keep waking up from the bell. But the key here is that eventually, even without the bell to wake them, the sensation of a full bladder becomes enough to wake the child and make them go pee, even when you take away the bell, just simply due to classical conditioning. So uh, let's do a uh, little review on this. So the unconditioned stimulus here, you guys, is the bell it doesn't, there's no conditioning needed for the child to wake up. Waking up is the unconditioned response. There's no conditioning needed to wake up from a loud bell. You're just going to do it. The conditioned stimulus, the stimulus that requires conditioning to elicit a response is the full bladder. The full bladder is paired over and over with the bell. And what is the conditioned response, the result of all this classical conditioning? That Now the child can wake up to a full bladder without need for the bell because the full bladder has been paired so much with the bell. So now when the child senses a full bladder, he or she can go use the washroom. Even without the bell, you no longer need the unconditioned stimulus the bell to elicit the response. Incredible application of this, of Pavlov's idea. And studies have uh, found support for this. They found an 80% success rate and have found it to be the best method for treating bedwetting. This is as recently as 2011, uh, discovered by Brown, or reviewed by Brown, Pope, and Brown in 2011. So this is uh, really a proven way to use classical conditioning for the better. Uh, not only in therapy, but even something as as uh, practical as bedwetting. Let's talk about how it plays out in advertising. So... Um, how classical conditioning is used by advertisers. So if you pair a positive stimulus, like an attractive model, for instance, with an initially neutral stimulus, uh so the drink being advertised the, the attractive model is holding this drink then after seeing this ad enough the idea is that the positive reaction to the model becomes transferred to the advertised beverage then when consumers get to the store they may even subconsciously reach for that drink as opposed to others because they associate uh, the positive feelings they get from the model to the uh, and they place those positive feelings onto this advertised beverage now past Mountain Dew marketing strategy has taken uh, advantage of classical conditioning as well. The comp- There was a time when company executives of Mountain Dew, uh, they gave out Mountain Dew during enjoyable, exhilarating activities such as skateboarding, snowboarding, and surfing. The idea was that eventually these athletes would associate Mountain Dew with enjoyable, exhilarating feelings. So the unconditioned stimulus that naturally elicits a positive response—the snowboarding, or the uh, the surfing, uh, or the skateboarding—now is transferred to the conditioned stimulus, the Mountain Dew. If you pair this exhilarating activity with Mountain Dew enough, that exhilaration you get from that activity almost gets transmitted over to uh, the Mountain Dew, which is incredibly interesting. Um, funnily enough, you guys. Uh, And I'm not just getting this from any source, this is from, uh, actually most of this is from my intro psychology textbook. Uh, It actually plays out in fetishes. So constantly pairing an initially neutral stimulus during sexual experiences can cause sexual attraction to be conditioned towards an initially neutral stimulus like a shoe, stocking, doll, stuffed animal, and even an automobile engine. From Lowenstein 2002, people actually have fetishes for things as funny as these, because what's happening is that The idea is that, well, let's go through uh, an experiment to show an example of how a fetish could possibly happen through classical conditionings. There was an experiment done with quails. Uh, Quails are a type of bird. So after 30 pairings of a cloth with a sexual partner, which with which the bird mated with, the bird eventually tried to mate with the cloth when that object appeared by itself. So basically what's happening is that if you pair some random stimulus while mating, the uh, the sexual attraction you get f- from the mating activity gets transmitted to the cloth. So the idea is that it, with fetishes, maybe um, when you were during that sexual activity, there might've been this object nearby, or you might've looked at that object over and over. And now your feelings get transmitted over to these crazy things, even like stuffed animals or automobile engines. Now, although the generalizability of these findings, uh, from quails to humans is a little bit unclear there is good evidence that at least some people do develop fetishes by the repeated pairing of neutral objects with sexual activity um, from Ratchman and Hodgson 1968 Weinberg Williams and Callan 1995 so there is evidence that this is the uh, it is it possibly is due to classical conditioning that fetishes arise Let's talk about, I guess, some more serious implications and uh, some really uh, groundbreaking findings with the immune system in classical conditioning. So Adder and Cohen in 1975, so they were researching the conditioning of immunosuppressive effects, conditioning of the immune system, and if they could suppress the immune system of rats in this case. So what they did was they gave rats saccharin-flavored water. I believe it's just like a sugar-flavored water. Along, at the same time, as they gave them this saccharin flavored water, they also gave them a drug that suppressed the immune system. Later, by simply giving rats the saccharin flavored water, the immune systems of the rats became suppressed even without the drug. And after the initial effects of the drug had already worn off so in this case you guys the unconditioned stimulus is the immunosuppressant drug because it doesn't need any conditioning to cause the unconditioned response of a weakened immune system due to the drug the conditioned stimulus in this case is the saccharin water because it takes conditioning for it to elicit a response and the conditioned response now is a weakened immune system not to the to the drug but just by drinking the saccharine water, your immune system becomes weakened, which is an re- uh, incredible discovery of classical conditioning. In the opposite way, Solveson, Ganada, and Hiramoto in 1988 did conditioning of immuno-enhancing effects of how to possibly enhance the immune system through classical conditioning. What they did was they presented rats with the smell of Campor along with a drug that enhanced the immune system, uh, kind of like uh, the original researchers did, but with a, a drug that uh, depressed the immune system. So eventually, what these re- researchers found was that by simply administering the smell of Campor to the rats, their immune system became enhanced. So the unconditioned stimulus. Uh, is the immuno-enhancing drug because it takes no conditioning to elicit the unconditioned response of enhanced immune system uh, due to the drug. The conditioned stimulus is the or smell because the or was paired a bunch after feeling uh, your immune system was enhanced. And now the conditioned response, only the or alone is needed to enhance the immune system. Incredible discoveries of classical conditioning. And that is going to do it for the episode of uh, in-depth analysis into classical conditioning and some principles there. Um, hopefully, I was able to uh, convey that in a in a way that you guys can understood through through audio format. Um, and uh, thank you guys for listening in. As always, uh, another Monday morning. It's becoming a routine now, and I'm loving it. And it's feeling great to start off with a new episode, new ideas, new in-depth analysis every week, every single week. This is what we're doing, you guys. Uh, if you liked this episode and you like in-depth analysis and do a bunch of topics, please share it with at least one person who's interested in psychology or classical conditioning. I know these are the in- initial experiments and initial principles that made me fall in love with psychology. So if you know someone who's studying that or you know uh, someone who's also interested in things similar to this, please share this episode with them. Um, please subscribe to the podcast as well on whatever platform you're listening on. So whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or anywhere else, if you are on Apple Podcasts, please leave a star rating and a review. Uh, and if if you're on YouTube, please like the video if you enjoyed it. You can also share your own thoughts and ideas from the YouTube comments section from the Connect page on the website or on Instagram at Media or Twitter at TeamITM. If you happen to be on the website, feel free to check out uh, the blog posts for poems and other articles. If you want to join the monthly ITP video conference call where we come together every month to have insightful discussions or just talk about anything, you can support the podcast on Patreon. But in the end, you guys... Whatever you do to support, listening or watching, will always be more than enough. And uh, I'm glad you guys are tuned into some uh, some psychology because this is is what I love the most: science and especially psychology. So I was happy to uh, talk to you guys about one of the main principles in psychology: classical conditioning. You guys, thank you for tuning into the Insightful Thinkers podcast, everybody. Um, and we'll be back next Monday morning, as always for my in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody.